seems to be the prevailing spirit among many in our day uh, that we are in times of turmoil. Whether or not that's true in comparison to other points in history is for us to, I suppose, judge individually and to have our opinions about and ultimately for God to judge as the one who knows everything. But whether or not it's true or to whatever degree it may be true, there certainly is a sense of it and it causes people to be concerned and it causes people to worry and to be fearful. In looking at our times, um, we get just a little bit of a taste in terms of how people might think of what will be the case to a far greater degree in the time that's described in this text. A time of distress, Daniel is told, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. The time that is described in Daniel chapter 12 is a time that will put all other times of upheaval and distress to shame. And it is a time that is promised to specifically bring this about among this nation that Daniel is part of, this nation of Israel. And yet at the same time, this is really the culmination of what is intended in this message to Daniel to give hope to Daniel. To give hope that even though there is going to be a difficult time at the end for them, that this is the time when God is going to shine the most brightly, if you will. When they're going to receive the greatest blessing of all. And this is a time that will usher in their eternal blessing. That is the message here of this text. And so while it is something that they may look forward to in one sense with trepidation... It really is the kind of thing that is going to bring them into glory. Some of you may have had uh, medical procedures at times, surgeries or other things that you were scared to have, scared to undergo. And yet you did it even despite perhaps fears or even knowing that there would be suffering and pain in the recovery. And you did it because you knew that afterward, or at least you hoped that afterward, that there would be relief. That there would be uh, back to normal or maybe even better than it had ever been. We do things like this all the time. We undergo periods of suffering in order to bring that about. And we can endure the suffering and the hardship because we know what's coming beyond that. Well, all the more in this promise and in this text, there is a hope that powers through the suffering of the present day and the suffering of the future because of the gloriousness of the promise that is described. Now, we are here at the very end of an angelic vision that's been given to Daniel, at least in terms of the words that are being spoken. Beginning in chapter 11, really verse 2, about the prediction of the future, and going all the way through chapter 12, verse 3, is the, the essence of the text of those, these future predictions. There is more to come in the conclusion, starting in verse 4 through the end of chapter 12, where Daniel is given some final instructions and has some questions that he has answered, or at least answered in part. But really, this is the culmination of the prediction of where things are going to go for Daniel's people from all the way at the time where he is in the mid-530s B.C., all the way up until the time when all of the promises that God has given about the kingdom of God and all the promises that he's given about the nation of Israel come to pass. 
So this is a long period of time. And we've seen that some of the sections that are spoken of here speak of particular eras during that time. There was the time starting at Daniel's time leading all the way up through the reign of Antiochus IV in the 160s. BC. Then there was between verses 35 and 36 sort of a jump chronologically to the end time and a final king, a final ruler who would be particularly hostile toward Israel, particularly powerful. Uh, We refer to him sometimes as Antichrist. But it is at that time when he will come to his end and when he will be reigning and ruling that something else, in fact, several other things will happen. And that's what is described here. And verses uh, 1 through 3, chapter 12, begin to describe what will happen to Daniel's people as part of the larger bringing in of the kingdom of God. If you've been with us in Daniel chapter 2 and 7, this would be the fifth and final kingdom in the visions that were given. This is the kingdom that wipes away all of those other kingdoms and takes over everything. It literally will bring about world domination. But it's not world domination by an evil, sinful, finite man or kingdom. Instead, rather, it is the reign and the rule of God through his appointed king, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As he reigns upon the earth, in justice and righteousness, as he reigns not in corruption and partiality and evil and oppression, but rather just the opposite. He brings about life and peace and salvation and joy and bliss. And that's what this section tells us is going to happen. What the message of this text is directly is this, that at the peak of their ages of suffering and exile at the peak of their time of suffering and exile Israel will turn their heart to the Lord and they will be delivered from all their troubles unto a glorious future at the peak of their ages of suffering and exile Israel will turn their heart to the Lord and they will be delivered from all their troubles unto a glorious future there are five parts of this that this text describes we'll begin in verse 1 with The rise of Michael. The rise of Michael. There may be a few of you here this morning who go by that name. Unfortunately, we're not talking about you or perhaps fortunately as it were. It says at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over uh, over the sons of your people. Michael has been mentioned in chapter 10, verse 13. It says, uh, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me. Uh, It says in verse 21, no one stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So he is one of the chief princes. Jude, in the ninth verse of the book of Jude, calls him an archangel. He uh, helps the angel of chapter 10 who is bringing this vision. He helps him stand against these other angelic beings who are or influencing or behind the power of the kingdoms of Greece and Persia. And he does so in a way that protects Israel at that time. Perhaps even keeping them from total annihilation at the hands of these other empires. But this here is said to be Michael, your prince. Michael, your prince. And this doesn't refer to Daniel, a singular person to whom this prince belongs. But rather your, plural, your people. He is the prince over Daniel's people, namely Israel. In fact, in a context where the prince of Greece is described and the prince of Persia, 
these rulers over nations, these angelic beings who are somehow behind the scenes of these nations, it's very clear that this is Michael himself is a prince over this other nation, the nation of Israel. And so as Paul Tanner says, quote, he is the archangel who has special responsibility for overseeing and protecting the Jewish people. Now it says that at this time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Well, what does that mean to say that he will arise? Well, you, can, you get the picture. It's as if he's just kind of not as active as he otherwise would be, even though he's very clearly doing things. But he's going to stand up, if you will, and take a more prominent role. He's going to take action. And it's difficult not to see this in light of later prophetic messages in the book of Revelation, also chapter 12. So if you would turn with me there, I want to just read a a bit of that chapter. Because it talks specifically about Michael. And it talks about him at a time that comes shortly before the coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 12. We'll read something of an extended section here. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and pain to give birth. Uh, The 12 stars uh, reflecting the 12 tribes of Israel. This child, of course, is going to be none other than that Messiah who would come from her. Who would be Jesus himself. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she gave birth he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. A reference back to Psalm chapter 2 and the son of God, the messianic ruler who would come. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That is the three and a half year time period that has come up in the book of Daniel a number of times. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Michael and his angels arise. They war against Satan and his angels. And Michael's forces are victorious over Satan and his forces. They are defeated. They are thrown out of heaven, which brings great joy in heaven. But, of course, now it's not their problem anymore. It is the earth's problem. And this is going to bring great trouble upon the earth for a time because now the devil is relegated to the earth full time and he is angry. He has great wrath 
and he knows that he only has a short time. So what's he going to do but spend all that gas that he has in the tank? And so he does three major things in following up upon this. Uh, Number one, he persecutes Israel. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Once again, the one plus two plus half three and a half year period that has so often been repeated this last half of Daniel's 70th week or seven years that were referred to in chapter 9. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the second thing that he will then do is to make war with other believers. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then number three, he empowers the Antichrist or the beast to rule over and to be worshipped by the whole world. Chapter 13, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten hordes and seven heads. On its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed. And followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Just to connect this back to previous sections in Daniel. Chapter 7 of Daniel, the little horn who would come out of this final human kingdom and speak blasphemous words against the God of gods. There was given to him, Revelation 13, 5, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Michael is going to arise Michael is going to win a war in heaven against Satan and his angels. And that will then lead to some ripple effects. That leads to the next event that's described in Daniel 12, which is the remarkable time of distress. The remarkable time of distress. What is Daniel told by this angel? There will be a time of distress such as never occurred. Since there was a nation until that time. This is a reference to what is referred to in several other places in scripture. Um, Perhaps most notably as the great tribulation. Or as Jeremiah 30 verse 7 calls it. The time of Jacob's distress. It says alas for that day is great there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Jacob, of course, being the original name for Israel. There is time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Jesus in Matthew 24 says that when the abomination of desolation is seen taking his seat in the holy place, 
in the temple. This is something that uh, makes reference to what Daniel talked about, the abomination of desolation. In fact, Jesus specifically says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel sitting in the holy place, he says that you need to run. If you're around that area, you're in Judea, you need to run. And the reason why is because he says in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The language here, by the way, in Matthew 24, 21, is very similar to the Greek version of Daniel 12, verse 1, to the point where there's really no way that Jesus is not making a reference to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and the time described to Daniel in that when he points to that future time shortly before his own coming. Luke's account of that speech by Jesus, by the way, notes that um, on that occasion, Jesus said at that future time, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, which aligns with what we just saw at the end of chapter 11 last week, where there would be uh, these armies closing in around Jerusalem. So it seems that this will take place halfway through Daniel's 70th week. It will be a sign that the end is near, that things are about to come to a close, but it will be bad. It's going to be bad. So just to think about how bad this is, consider who's hearing this. Who is he speaking to? Who is this angel speaking to in the book of Daniel? He's talking to Daniel. Okay, consider what Daniel has been through. Daniel has been in Jerusalem when it was conquered originally by the Babylonians. So that's bad, right? To have your city conquered by an invading army who was that powerful, um, and it took him back captive, so he knows that's bad. Um, consider that there were further desolations upon the city of Jerusalem to the point where the whole thing was burned to the ground in 586 B.C., left in total shambles. Consider even further the words that we read in chapter 11 about the attacks of Antiochus IV, in the 160s B.C., back in chapter 11. Um, and maybe even take it one step further. The Roman siege of Jerusalem that ended in the year 70, um, culminating in its destruction under the military commander and future emperor Titus. And Jesus says, excuse me, this angelic messenger says, which Jesus would later pick up, there's going to be a time of distress that never occurred since there was a nation until now. That is B-A-D, bad. By the way, it's not just for Israel that it'll be a problem. You read the book of Revelation, you see that really there's a lot of worldwide problems, distress going on at that time as well. But there's a particular emphasis upon Israel's distress that is noteworthy. But you also notice here that as bad as he says it's going to be, he immediately turns around and gives the most wonderful news that you could want to hear. Because he says, at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. At that time, they're all going to be rescued. This is the rescue of Israel. The rescue of Israel. Everyone found written in the book will be rescued. Who is going to be rescued? Well, first of all, Israel as a nation 
is who he's talking about. Your people, he refers to here. Your people. And when he talks to Daniel about your people, this is a clear reference to them. Back in chapter 9, when he's praying, he says, I'm praying about my people, Israel. And the prayer response is, your people. This is what Daniel continually says or is told throughout this book. Your people is a reference to this nation. Now, it says they're going to be rescued. Um, Well, from what will they be rescued? If you're going to be rescued, you have to be rescued from something, don't you? So what are they going to be rescued from? Well, we read in Revelation 12 how they will be protected um, in a certain sense during that time of tribulation by being temporarily protected in this uh, area, somehow in the wilderness. Jesus says, run. Jesus says, go out there. And Daniel says, this is, uh, or Revelation 12 says that there is going to be some type of safe place out there. But that's not really the whole picture. What, he's, what he has in mind here primarily is that they're going to be rescued for good from all oppression, from all their distress, all their trouble, all the things that are peaking in this final time of distress. All of that will be removed when Christ returns and when the kingdom of God comes to earth. Now, as you know, this is not just some kind of new teaching that this angel is bringing to Daniel. In fact, the real piece of new information here is not what would happen, but when it would happen, when it will happen. At that time, your people, everyone found written in the book, will be rescued. It's as if he's saying to Daniel, Daniel, it's not going to be anytime soon. All the events of chapter 11 have to happen, and all these events at the beginning of chapter 12 have to happen, including this ultimate time, this culmination of distress upon your people. And at that time, not now, not in the middle of this, but at that time, all of your people will be rescued. And of course, the reason we can say this, that it's just a matter of when, is because God has been telling Israel for centuries, before Daniel ever lived, and really right up through his own time in the prophets, that this was going to happen. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In fact, turn with me if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll go uh, a couple of places here. Deuteronomy 4. Now keep in mind, the book of Deuteronomy is being written uh, just near the end of the uh, 1400s B.C. Moses is speaking to Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. And before he even goes in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's already telling them that they're going to get kicked out of it. That they're going to be uh, so evil that they're going to be removed from the land. So before they even get in there, they have this warning and this promise. But listen to Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And there you'll serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. 
There's a whole lot going on in this passage, of course. The predicted uh, idolatry and rebellion, which happened. The scattering among the nations, which, of course, has happened. But then the promise turned to the Lord, verse 29. You're going to find him when you search for him with all your heart and soul. And verse 30 says, you're going to return to the Lord and listen to his voice. Now, this very clearly has not occurred. Even Romans chapter 11 says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. They largely are enemies of the gospel. They largely don't listen to God's word, even though they might give credence to what we know as the Old Testament. They might follow many of its traditions and practices in certain places. They have not done what is spoken of here. But he says, when you're in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. They're going to turn back. And the reason that he gives is this, verse 31, the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He won't fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Who is that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave them some rules and the law in the book of Exodus through Moses to administer that promise and to say, if you do what Moses says, then you're going to be the ones to fulfill these promises. But they broke that covenant. And um, you might think, well, they're done for. But a promise is a promise. A covenant is a covenant. And he swore this covenant to their forefathers well before this group of people was ever alive that they were going to be God's people and that they were going to inherit the promises and the land and the blessing that were given in the book of Genesis. So Deuteronomy 4 predicts this. Hosea 3 verse 5 says, Afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Look with me, if you will, in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, a, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel, uh, overlapping in some part as far as their lifespans. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, he says, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant is that? It's the covenant at Mount Sinai, the covenant through Moses. We call it the Mosaic covenant or the law or the Mosaic law. Not like that covenant. They broke that one. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more." What is involved in this covenant, this new covenant, he's not going to put the law on tablets of stone on the outside. He's going to put it on the heart. What does that mean? That makes your heart want to do those things. And he says, they're going to be my people. They will, I will be their God. I'm not going to reject them. They're going to belong to me. And they're not going to have to tell each other, hey, do you know the Lord? I, I think you need to know the Lord. But rather, they're all going to know me. This is going to be a national conversion. 
By the way, when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn that this new covenant is uh, brought about, the, the internal blessings, the, uh, the law written upon the heart is not just, as it turns out, a promise for Israel, but it's actually for anyone who believes because it's done by means of the Spirit of God writing God's law upon tablets of human hearts, not tablets of stone. And as well, the basis for this entire covenant at the end of verse 34 is the forgiveness of their iniquity, the forgiveness of their sin, which also comes to all believers in Jesus Christ who respond to the gospel. And so not just Israel, but all the nations who put their hope in Christ will have their sins forgiven completely and wiped away. And will have the Holy Spirit dwell in them so that they also, like this promise of Israel one day being, so that they also have the inclination, the desire, the ability to do what God says. The new covenant promises include forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And again, that's not exclusive to any one nation, but to all who put their hope in Christ. Nonetheless, he does say that I'm going to do this for this particular nation. And uh, he says in verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Uh, Is this going to happen? Well, he already promised in the covenant to Noah and all his descendants that it would not change. The sun, the fixed order of the moon, the stars, the light. uh, He already said, Genesis 8, Genesis 9. That's not going to change. So he says, if this can change, then then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. But what he's saying is, that can't happen. He knows they're disobedient. He's writing them, he's writing to a Uh, to this nation at a time when they were extremely disobedient, so much so that he's about to cast them off into exile. And yet he says, it's not going to happen. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, which they can't, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they've done. So he makes this promise that we then read about, summarized in Daniel 12, verse 1 at the very end. Where he says, at that time, your people will be rescued. A national restoration brought about by national repentance, national turning to the Lord. God is going to change their hearts and give them a new heart, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to know. And it is only when, by God's grace and God's kind working, that they do this. And because they do this, they will be delivered. And so Israel will indeed be rescued as a nation. But that leads us to consider just who it is on an individual level who gets to partake of that. Because very clearly there are some people who have lived as in part of that nation or as a part of that nation who are not going to be saved. And there are a lot of harsh words that the Bible has for such people. Jesus, in fact, encountered a very evil generation of Israel and unbelieving generation. And so it's critical in Daniel 12 to see that he specifies and clarifies. In verse 1, he says, your people will be rescued, but he gives a little caveat, a little qualifier that's very significant. Everyone who is found written in the book, that is only those in the book will be saved. A specific subset of the nation, a specific subset of Jews, of those of Israel, 
will be saved. He talks about the book here, and of course this very clearly seems to refer to the, uh, the idea of the book that's been spoken of in many places in Scripture, both before and after. Moses on Mount Sinai, speaking to God in Exodus 32, says, But if now, uh, verse 32, if now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. And uh, Psalm 69, 28, there is a cry. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. This isn't just for the Jews, however, that the book of life is written. Philippians 4, 3, it refers to many who have shared Paul's cause and the, the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's not just limited to that nation. But the words spoken here to Daniel do concern what the angel calls your people, the nation of Israel. And so we can conclude that there is overall repentance of the nation. Um, and it is true that everyone who enters the kingdom of God from this nation will be a believer. But we have to remember that only those who respond in repentance and faith will be saved. Even at that time, for a Jew to be saved and to enter God's kingdom is not automatic. It is not automatic. One of the attacks levied against people who believe in a future for Israel as a nation is that people just seem to think that Jews will be saved regardless of how they respond to Christ. And sadly, the way that some evangelical Christians talk about Israel, in particular Israel as a nation, even in its current form, and give a pass seemingly to just about everything they do as a nation, you might not blame such critics for latching onto that and saying things like that. You don't have to think, though, that you have to blindly support everything that the nation of Israel has done or that they do even to this day. It's never been the case. There are tons and tons and tons of prophecies rebuking the nation in the Bible for what they were doing. And the assumption is when they're still in a state of not having turned to Jesus Christ, that their guiltiness remains and that they are not simply to be affirmed in every single thing that they do. We want to heed the instruction in Genesis 12 to not curse them he says that he will bless those who bless Abraham's descendants and curse those who curse them we, we understand that but blessing them is not the same thing as simply saying whatever they do is right and they can do no wrong and we must support them unconditionally in every way instead a true understanding of a future for Israel is based upon repentance national repentance and the requirement for individual repentance among any person who wants to receive those blessings. And so Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Joel 2, verses 31 and 32, speaks of these final events. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Whoever and only those who call on the name of the Lord will be delivered. This is a message that is taken in Romans chapter 10 and is set forth as the principle by which someone is to be saved. This is how you are saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there Paul is clearly speaking about the forgiveness of sins that we all need. And if you've never done this and you've never received the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ, this is the instruction. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This is what you need to do now. 
This is what you need to make sure of. You can read all about Israel and their future and their salvation. You can look on them and say, why don't they just turn to the Lord and all the while be sitting there yourself having not done that. This is what needs to take place in every individual. And yet it's not just a spiritual salvation, a forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God as vital and as unbelievably great as those things are. But there is also all that comes with the promise of God's kingdom in the future, a rescue from everything bad. And so when it says in Joel 2.32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, they'll be delivered not only from their sins, but also, even as we sang this morning, from their sorrows, from everything that is bad. And so Israel is to be saved, but it is limited. It is, there is a condition, which is repentance, which will then result in everyone who is remaining after things are sorted out at that time among this nation, being, in fact, a Christian. Now, there is a fourth event that takes place. It is, in verse 2, the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. They sleep in the dust of the ground. I don't know about you. I don't know too many people who are just sleeping in the dust of the ground. He's clearly not just talking about someone taking a nap or going to bed. He is talking about death. And resurrection. They sleep and they will awake. And just as in the New Testament, the word sleep is often used metaphorically to refer to the fact that death for believers in particular, but in one sense for all people, is temporary. It's not final. Um, it talks about sleep. It doesn't mean that they'll be unconscious. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord and Paul said in Philippians 1.23, it's better to depart this life and be with Christ. So it's better to be there. He wants to be with Christ, which would certainly seem to imply some degree of consciousness, awareness, a conscious awareness that you are actually with him. Nonetheless, he says here that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. A clear allusion back to the fact that in Genesis 3.19, Adam was told as part of the curse for his sin that he was going to return to the ground because he is told you are dust and to dust you shall return. Using the same words for dust and ground all the way back in Genesis 3. Clearly God is saying that there is going to come for these people a reversal of that consequence of the curse. This is news that's almost too good to be true. This is the problem that everyone's trying to fix, isn't it? I mean, everyone. This, this, ultimately, this is the problem. Whatever else you do in life, death is the thing that ultimately gets in the way. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher who wrote that book, he ponders life and its purpose. He says, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this. I looked around, I saw this. And then I found that death awaits us all. And he keeps running into that obstacle. A lot of people today trying to find things to overcome death, to put it off, to um, maybe even to get rid of it in some way. But the answer to the curse of death is not going to be found in medicine or technology. It's not going to be found in freezing your body or uncovering the chemical path to anti-aging. It's only going to be found in one place, and that is the promise that God has made. Daniel 12.2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. This is so much more than just a hope for a legacy, or, you know, doing good in the world while you're here, or 
uh, making the world a better place than you found it. And there are elements of those things which certainly can be good. But this is so much better than that. Resurrection to life. And so this verse here is, among others, perhaps the clearest Old Testament basis for the resurrection of the dead. Not just a New Testament concept, not just a Jesus concept, not just a Pharisee concept even, but a biblical concept. And people generally recognize that the Bible teaches very clearly the resurrection of Jesus, as much as some people want to write that off. But what they don't see, if they don't keep reading, is the promise of the resurrection of all the dead to be judged and to enter their ultimate destination. The Apostle Paul changed a lot of his views when he came to Christ, but one doctrine that he did have right as a Pharisee was the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And it wasn't something they came up with on their own. It was something firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Job 19, verse 25 says, I know my Redeemer lives. At the last he'll take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job knew it. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn. The earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Look over with me, if you will, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. So much here about the subjects that we're talking about in these chapters around Ezekiel 37. But in particular, this is pertinent for... This subject of resurrection, verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. It speaks, of course, of the resurrection of this particular nation, Israel, and of their restoration to the land. People often go to this passage in spiritual terms. They talk about the power of preaching and of the word of God. And to be sure, the word of God is powerful and it does give spiritual life. 
And yet there is a more direct message here that God is going to resurrect the dead and fulfill his promises that he has made. And so we have here a promise, a message of everlasting life between not only Daniel but also Ezekiel. We're promised that uh, this nation will receive this. And so it is, first of all, the resurrection of the dead is a promise to Israel. It's a promise to Israel. As it is said here in Ezekiel 37, Daniel chapter 12. But it's not just a promise to Israel. The resurrection is all of our hope. It's the hope of all believers. The hope of all believers. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Anyone who is in Adam, which is all of his descendants, all the descendants from the very first man, every person who's ever lived will die. But everyone who is in Christ will live again, will have everlasting life, will be raised to everlasting life. And so if you are a Christian, not just a Jew, not just someone from the nation of Israel, but anyone who believes, then you will live again and you'll be made alive. First Thessalonians 4 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He is going to raise us from the dead. And so it is a promise to Israel. It's the hope of all believers. And it is thirdly, a resurrection unto judgment. A resurrection unto judgment. It says in 12.2, the others, it says many will, uh, see, these will awake to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Some will be rewarded with everlasting life. Those who are believers, but others will be raised and judgment will be cast upon them. Disgrace, they're worthy of reproach, taunting, reviling from others. In fact, everlasting contempt refers to uh, them being an object of loathing, despicable. Why? Because they rebelled against God. And all the more if they reject the gospel of God. So there's a resurrection unto judgment. The promise of everlasting life is only for those who put their hope in Christ. It is only for those who are shown faithful to him. So in Acts 24, 15, Paul says he has a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. We're all going to be raised to, to be judged. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to stand in that judgment? Psalm 1 says that sinners will not stand in the judgment, nor the wicked in the congregation of the righteous. But the man who meditates on the law of the Lord, the man who is righteous, the man who ultimately fears the Lord and trusts in Christ, he will be blessed. Daniel closes this section, verse 3, by speaking of the rewarding of the righteous. The promise and specifically says, those who have insight, those who have insight, those who have wisdom, really wisdom that is in keeping with God's word. It is aligned with what he tells us as truth. There were those in verse 33 and 35 of the previous chapter who have insight. And they helped the people and they took a stand. And uh, yet some of them were purged. Some of them fell, verse 35. 
of Daniel 11. They suffered at that time, but that is not their end. Those who have insight, he says, will do what? Shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who are wise and live according to God's truth are going to look like this. And Jesus, in fact, says in uh, Matthew 13, 43, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, making reference back to this verse as a reward at the end times. This isn't about what's going to take place during this difficult time. It will be the reward that comes after forever. And he says, those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever. It's not just wise living, but it's taking other people and it's helping them to do the same. This for us has very clear applications. Preaching the gospel so that people are saved. Making them become righteous and they're standing before God. And then in their practice, discipling them, teaching them to do all that Jesus said. What is the reward for this? Shining brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven or like the stars forever and ever. This is a reward that will never be taken away. So many things we choose not to do because we want the praise here and now. We want the reward here and now. We don't want to forsake the comfort or the approval or the reputation. We don't want people to think a certain way about us. And so what do we do? Well, we go against the insight that we have, or we don't try to turn many, to lead many to righteousness, and we invest ourselves in other pursuits. And yet here he says, this is going to bring a reward that will not go away, shining brightly like the stars forever and ever. Perhaps a reference even to the nature of our glorified bodies, which will be transformed from this present state into something else at that time. Either way, this is something that very clearly we want to be part of and to take part in. And so you need to get insight. You need to try to use the word of God to live your life in a way that aligns with what he says is right, what he says is best. And you need to take that and help other people along the way. That's going to be difficult. It'll take time. It'll take patience. It'll take sacrifice. And yet the reward is literally eternal for this. A lot of promises that God has made. And yet you can see here how he is kind of wrapping a bow on everything that is going to happen to this nation. Everything that he has promised is going to take place. And God is faithful. And the wonderful thing is as well that we get in on all of this. We get in on the resurrection. We get in on the rescue. We get in on the opportunity to lead other people to righteousness. We get in on the opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, as 2 Timothy 2 says... To reign with him. It's a glorious future coming not only for this nation but all who believe and put their hope in Christ. And above all else is my hope and my urging to you that you would make sure today that this is what you've done. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, thank you for this time where we consider your faithfulness, your kindness, your glorious promises to those who are your people. And we pray that you would help us to respond in faith to what you've told us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.